Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. With over 30 years experience in the domestic violence and child welfare fields, this week's podcast guest, David Mandel, is focused on improving the way we identify and respond to domestic violence, particularly relating to children. David has written and co-written numerous journal articles, books, book chapters, and white papers, including his most recent ones on how perpetrator intervention program completion certificates can be dangerous for survivors and on worker safety in the context of domestic violence. David and the Safe and Together Institute have worked with governments and NGOs in Canada, the US, Australia, Asia, and the United Kingdom. David hopes that his work ends the use of a failure to protect mentality in domestic violence cases and helps systems better work with complex cases involving mental health issues, substance misuse, and domestic violence. In today's podcast, David joins us to discuss the Safe and Together Institute's model for change, widely used across the globe by diverse government and NGO agencies across Australia. The perpetrator pattern-based approach helps identify harm to child, partner and family functioning, supports partnering with survivors and delves into intervention strategies with perpetrators. Hi everybody and welcome back to another episode of Pebble in the Pond and with me today gives me a great pleasure to introduce David Mandel. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. All the way from the States, I appreciate the time zone differences. Whereabouts are you based at the moment, David? Well, right now I'm visiting with my parents in Maryland, but normally I'm home based in Connecticut and I grew up in New York City. Oh, East Coast. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Well, David, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today as far as, you know, in the professional context. What got you interested? What got you focused and heavily invested in helping domestic violence sector? It actually goes back over 30 years in uni for me, you know, where I got exposed to issues of male violence against women. And I listened one day to a march of men out in the Midwest of the United States who are, who are men marching against men's violence against women. And something clicked for me, to be honest. And I just became motivated in a way that I can't still quite understand to address this issue and deal with it. So I started in uni doing education on sexual assault and homophobia, then started right out of uni doing men's behavior change work, doing perpetrator intervention work, and started a practice 
eventually went back to school for mental health, for gestalt therapy and a degree in counseling and psychology. But all the time I was doing work in the domestic violence sector and eventually started doing training for child protection. And that's really where the Safety Together model and the work I'm doing today took off and, and really started seeing how systems were often ignoring the perpetrator, the person actually causing the harm and focusing so much of their energy on the choices and behaviors of the domestic violence survivor, usually the mom, and were being inefficient and ineffective for safety of the entire family, for meeting the needs of the kids. And so out of all those experiences, and there's a lot of them, overseeing domestic violence consultants, starting to train nationally in the US, we started going, I started going wide internationally around 2010, first in the UK, and eventually a few years later over to Australia, where we started doing work in 2014. And now the Safety Other Institute has 280 certified trainers all over the world, 80 partner agencies, and a heavy involvement in both Australia and New Zealand that I can, that I can dive into as well. But that gives you a, a real thumbnail of sort of some of my background. That's amazing. How, how do you think that diverse, broad spectrum, you know, mental health, a lot of different areas that you touched on in your professional academic career, how did that help you come to it with a new set of eyes? Do you think having that broad background really helped you coming into the sector and trying to really identify solutions and, and issues where challenges and stuff where things were going a bit wrong? Yeah, I, I think so, Sam. And I, I think that one of the things that was different for me is I jumped in right from, from uni into men's behavior change, into perpetrator intervention work. And then my mental health work was layered on top of that, that training, you know, both, both a, a, a degree, a master's degree, but also eight years of professional training in body-centered assault therapy. And, and so I took all those tools and used them in service of the work around domestic violence work. And I think the perpetrator pattern-based focus has carried through the entire way. We talk about the safe and together model as a perpetrator pattern-based approach. And the foundation of that is identifying the perpetrator's pattern of coercive control and actions taken to harm the kids, and then tying those behaviors to child, partner, and family functioning. And I think in, in many ways, I, while I appreciate the mental health perspective, the issue of domestic violence is so behavioral in its foundation to do good work in this space you have to be able to describe those behaviors. You can't just label, you have to describe the behaviors, but then you have to be able to tie those things into, let's say mom's addiction issues or mom's trauma issues. And I can talk more about that, but I think that my background gave me a unique perspective to tie those things together and break down silos between the mental health, the addiction and the domestic violence field. 30 years ago, you mentioned you heard the march was on whilst you were at uni. Yeah. In the 30 years, I mean, how have you seen things progress, transform? How would you describe it? I think that one of the biggest advances that's happened in the last 30 years is understanding domestic violence through the lens of course control. I think this is one of the areas where it rubs up against the mental health field a little bit. I could talk about that. Yeah. But coercive control really helps us understand that that these behavior patterns are about entrapment. They're about deprivation of liberties. They're about controlling somebody, what they do and what they say. And it's about a, a wider range of behaviors than just physical violence. So it, it can be about emotional abuse. We talk a lot about how perpetrators target systems for manipulation. So for instance, I may call up 
child safety and make a false allegation against my partner. Or an example out of a recent case, my partner and I are involved with child safety. She's got an addiction issue. I've been violent. She's not supposed to be drinking. I bring her alcohol. I give her alcohol. I push it on her. She starts drinking. I get abusive with her physically. And then when she fights back, now she's drunk and she's getting aggressive in response to my violence, I start videotaping her. And now I've got a videotape. I didn't videotape myself being violent. I didn't videotape myself giving her alcohol. And But now I've got something to trap her because now she knows if she calls the police or if she goes to family court or if she goes back to child protection, I'm just going to whip out this video and show them how quote unquote crazy she is and how she's an addict and how violent she is. And so that advance around understanding course control and domestic violence through that lens of entrapment is so important to be in alignment, to help us be in alignment with survivors, but it doesn't fit in with that, that neatly with that trauma lens because the trauma lens is so much focused on physical violence, that experience of violation of that personal space of that violation of boundaries or the observation of a loved one being violated in that way. And so I think sometimes the as, as strong and as powerful as the trauma lens is, that I think we they're not always in alignment. And that's why we say being trauma-informed is not the same thing as domestic violence-informed. They're two, two things. Mm, that's interesting. And so you've seen some advancements in that over the last 30 years. And obviously the Safe and Together model was born from you know some of these challenges as well so do you want to talk us about how that came about the safe and together model and how it began yeah the safe and together model came out of a, a whole series of experiences listening to survivors listening to advocates listening to family violence researchers practicing in the domestic violence space around working with with perpetrators or, or usually men who used violence and control and then once i moved into the child protection space realizing that people couldn't talk about the perpetrator's pattern of behavior. If I asked them about a case they had to talk to child safety workers, they say to me, well, dad's been arrested three times and we've had three open cases related to domestic violence. And I'd say, well, can you describe to me the perpetrator's pattern of behavior? Because knowing that perpetrators are heterogeneous in their dangerousness and their, and, and their behaviors, they say, well, you know, dad's been arrested three times and we've had three open cases. And they could only tell me the administrative things. They could only tell me the systems intervention. So they couldn't describe the danger. They couldn't tie those behaviors to the kids. So they, they weren't able to Piece tie together the kids' ADHD or the behavioral issues or developmental delays and tell the story about how the dad's violence had created those problems. They could just slap a label on it, say it's domestic violence, and these are the service referrals we make. They couldn't give a context for the mom's decision-making and why she was still in their relationship. All they could say is, well, she keeps picking him over the kids and she lets him back into the house. And they weren't able to take the information about his violence and control and say, well, he's coercing her where it's not safe for her to stop him from coming back to the house. And so I'd watch this happen over and over again with a tremendous amount of mother blaming and a tremendous amount of gender double standards. And what that looked like was that moms were held accountable for almost everything that was happening to the kids. And the dads were often not being seen, being invisible. And over and over, I'd see cases come in because the dad or the boyfriend got violent. 
but all the casework was about mom's depression and parenting. And so again, you see these places where all of a sudden what a clinician was hoping to solve. So let's say she's referred to a therapist to deal with the depression. Well, dealing with the mom's depression didn't deal with her violence. They were related, but the clinical person over there wasn't necessarily treating the course of control because they weren't dealing with the person being violent. So I would see over and over again, moms being held accountable in relation to the kids about what the perpetrator was doing. And, and out of those experiences, the Safe and Together model was born. I mean, these are complex situations, aren't they? I mean, it's not like there's a number of different layers that you need to go through to understand it in depth, don't you? And so the, the Saving Together model, how does the framework really bring that out and, and help support those people who have been victims, but also the perpetrators themselves? It starts with this basic idea that if you're going to have a conversation or do treatment related to domestic violence, or you've identified domestic violence as an issue, you need to be able to describe that perpetrator's pattern of behavior and its impact on child partner and family functioning. And so I don't want to make it too simplistic. I mean, you're right. There are layers to that. But if you're sitting down and dealing with somebody in the, the mental health space, you want to ask them questions and say, well, if, if so domestic violence is identified, well, describe that to me and describe to me what those behaviors have been. And then let's look at how those behaviors have impacted your functioning, your function as a person, your function as a parent. And then now tell me how right now that still may be a factor in your life because couples who are separated, I just dealt with a case where, where the couple had been separated for eight years and there were issues that were being identified as mom's mental health or mom's parenting. Well, they're actually a symptom of his ongoing control post-separation. And so you can't assume that even if the couple's not together, that there's not still influence or impact of that domestic violence perpetrator's behavior. So as a clinician, in some ways, it just starts with, am I asking questions about those patterns of behaviors? And am I trying to understand their impact on the current functioning, the past functioning of this person, the function of the family? And if I'm a clinician and my client is going through family court, you know, are they worried that this mental health counseling even is going to be used against them? for instance. But it's all revolves around this understanding of how perpetrators act and then starting to think about those things in connection with the client you may be seeing or what they might be experiencing. Let me give you another example. We know that domestic violence perpetrators tell their partners they're crazy, that they're going to use their mental health treatment against them. They're going to claim they have mental health issues. They interfere. Let's say they've got an addiction issue. They may accuse them of having fares with somebody when they go to their AA meeting or their treatment program, you know? And so if you're a clinician and you're working with somebody and you're working with them on their addiction or their depression or their anxiety, not to assess for, is your treatment being sabotaged? Is somebody getting in the way of you getting to this session? Is somebody stopping you? Are you afraid that your participation here with me is going to be used against you by somebody? My experience is that's not within the traditional boundaries of what mental health clinicians think is their job. And I don't, I don't, I'm one of them and it's not what we're trained to do. Mm. And so I think that's one of the areas where, where we look at sort of making the complex simple. It just keeps coming back to me to perpetrators patterns and their imp understanding their impact on people's functioning, their day-to-day -day lives. And saving together, the model has been going now for how long? 
15, 16 years. Wow. And over that time, I mean, you've mentioned you've got a lot of trainers out there now and you also, your program's being adopted across the world. Tell us about the success of the framework and the results that you've been seeing. You know, I'll give you two recent anecdotes, you know, and, you know, we're not your traditional service provision model. We're not a service provider. We're a systems change organization. We provide training, consultation, organizational assessment. And now we do it across multiple sectors, whether it's child safety, whether it's child and family agencies. We're working with addiction agencies, actually, one particular one in in Victoria. You know, we're working with courts. You know, we're working with the, the Family Court of Australia. We're training their registrars and court child experts and judges. You know, so really the model is being used really broadly across sectors. So, so part of the success, one level of success is, is that it's giving people a common framework. Instead of sitting down and, and saying, we've got this case where, where mom keeps going back to him or she keeps making poor choices or she keeps picking him over the kids. And the more insidious one right now, to be honest, also is mom's a trauma survivor. We can't expect anything more from her. And all those things are really about focusing on, on, on the, the victim. Mm. You know, even if you've got somebody who's been abused in three relationships, each of those individual partners chose to be violent to her. Her prior trauma history didn't make them be violent to her, didn't make them be abusive to her. And, and so we need this really clear example of this kind of understanding of the issues. So the, 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 the vignettes that I'm thinking about is one is, Somebody who who told the story, and I shared it at our, our our Queensland implementation summit a few months ago, with permission from her. She said she was involved with child safety pre Safe and Together. Queensland Child Safety is is really made a huge investment in Safe and Together. Probably in Australia, at that child safety level, they're the the, the largest uptake of Safe and Together. Not just child safety in Queensland, but the the legal community and NGOs and and just Queensland has really taken the lead in a lot of ways and. And she said prior to Safety Together, when Chop Safety got involved, she was blamed. There was no look at her partner. The case was closed with no no action at all. But it was it was sort of, Mom, what are you doing? And then post Safety Together, she said she was already separated from her, her partner, but she wanted to get an intervention order. Child Safety came in, assessed his parenting, identified the ways he was harming her, and then they supported her with a letter that she could then use to get an appropriate order to keep herself and her kids safe. So they were willing to, to describe his behaviors and how they were harming the kids. And, and so one of the things we talk about in the model is, is domestic violence perpetration as a parenting choice. And so we're seeing that thinking played out over and over in cases where people are saying, oh, wait a second, we've got to treat the domestic violence perpetrator as a parent and their violence to the, to the mom or they're choosing to expose their kids to the violence, or they're interfering with the kids' functioning. That's a parenting choice that we need now to hold them accountable for instead of saying, oh, it's mom's job to get the kids away. And if she doesn't do that, then we're gonna hold, we're gonna blame her. So we're, one, we're seeing that all over the place. Another example is we're doing work with the Ministry of Health in New South Wales. And we're working on this great project with Professor Kathy Humphreys. And we're on our fifth project with her. And sometimes those projects are supported by ANROs. Sometimes they're supported by other entities. This one is a close-in, multi-year project with, with the Ministry of Health in New South Wales. We're working with mental health clinicians, addiction workers, a whole range of folks. It's got a, a strong component about looking at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities 
and clients and, and how to be culturally safe in that way. And, and so we've seen in those cases, the use of our mapping tool, one of our main, our main tools that we offer is a, is a mapping tool to map perpetrators patterns, to map the, that harm on child partner family functioning, to map the intersections of the domestic violence perpetration and mental health and addiction, um, to look at manipulation of systems, to look at things like lateral violence, a whole range of things. And this one clinician said, prior to the Safer Together training, I would have looked at this mom and this eight years of separation and said, you know, these are her issues. The domestic violence is historic. And I think it's what a lot of people do is they say, mm -hmm. they're not living together, they're, they're not together as a couple, and therefore the domestic violence is not an issue. And they don't consider post-separation control, post-separation violence, the ongoing impact on the mom and child's relationship of the perpetrator's behavior. And so this person was able to look at it and say, wait a second, there's more here than meets the eye. I'm going to map this. And then what she found was ongoing manipulation by the perpetrator around the systems. And so all these different things, you know, kind of played into it and was able to, within that to really change the response of the child protection system and the family court because of using the safety of the model and her own passionate advocacy for the mom and the child. And, and so, so we, we, we hear these stories repeated all over the world, you know, whether it's integrated service responses in New Zealand, mm -hmm. we're working with them and they're changing the way they work with partners or the ministry of defense in the, the United Kingdom where we've trained trainers there. And they'll tell us we've prevented the, the, the discharge of service people of women who are being abused because their performance had gone down. We were about to discharge them and using safety together. We've, we've changed the entire response focus on the perpetrator. And then even in some of these cases, that service person went on to get a promotion where, where before she was going to get discharged. So it's making real differences in the practice of the professionals, which is in turn leading to, to real changes in the, the lives of the of families. It sounds like it's more empowering to the survivors, the victims, you know, rather than, you know, traditionally, which which is truly amazing when you think about it. If, you know, this has been, you've been now doing this for 15, 16 years. I mean, to try and get the victim out of their situation and set them up in a completely new area, no supports, no friends, family around. Traditionally, that's been the sort of the answer that's been going on. I mean, this, this flips it on the head a little bit, doesn't it? It absolutely does. What it says is that the systems need to focus their interventions more on the perpetrator, particularly as a parent. And it can't just be arrest mm. and it can't be just incarceration or referral to a men's behavior change program. All systems that are dealing with them, whether it's addiction or mental health or child safety, need to be thinking about intervening with this person. But the big bit that you're kind of pointing to is the language we use is how do we all partner with that survivor? Mm. And part of that partnering with that survivor is dropping the expectation. And sometimes I use the word professional arrogance that we know the right answer for her, that we know um, that she should be calling the police, that she be, should be going to refuge, just like you said, to be moving and separated. And this is particularly onerous on poor women, on indigenous women, you know, black and brown women in the U.S. Because when you say to that person, well, you should have called the police, and their experience is calling the police might get me arrested, yeah. might lead to the death of the death of my partner in custody, Kids. may lead to police brutality. Mm -hmm. Then she's got a very good reason, a very good rationale for not calling the police, even on top of the partner might escalate. And so when we say, oh, if you didn't call, you're failing to protect. 
we're we're setting that you know there's two levels of racism there's mm. two levels of structural in- inequity there and so so we really talk about partnering with a survivor and what we discuss is that we need to identify and go in and assume she's safety planning for herself and her kids before we ever met her mm-hmm. and we have to look at the full what we say the full spectrum of our efforts to promote the safety and well-being of the kids and and what that really means is we need to give her credit for parenting in a foxhole we need to see that she's managed to keep the kids medically up to date. That isn't just a tick box. It means she might have had to borrow transport, borrow money. If she was forced to flee to another area and they're not near their doctor, then then she's she's done heroic efforts just to sometimes put food on the table or keep a routine for her kids. And a lot of times that would become invisible because of gender. We just assume that's what moms do. And so she wouldn't get credit. And then, and again, so making the, the connection with the mental health perspective, mental health is, is the profession. And again, I can speak this way because I'm part of the, the profession. We're really good at identifying pathologies, deficits, problems, mm-hmm. anxiety disorders. We associate, when we think domestic violence and we think domestic violence survivors, we think trauma histories, we think depression, we think all these different diagnoses and different kind of impacts that might be there. From the violence, we're not trained, and also sometimes family violence specialists aren't trained this way to think what are her strengths and her protective efforts. What has she done right by the kids? How has she managed their safety and their needs in the context of the violence, even when the wider system has failed her? And so the safety of the mall says you've got to start there. You've got to start with asking about those strengths, trying to understand the way she's actively trying to keep the kids safe. Even if the kids still are in danger, you have a responsibility to try to understand those things and then validate them back to her. And so we're very strength-based and, and very much this has resonated within diverse communities. There's a lot about the model actually has resonated with Indigenous communities, particularly in Australia. We've been getting a lot of feedback about the value that's being felt there. But you're right. It is a strength-based model. It's a, it turns things on its head. And it, it really asks people to start thinking a little bit differently about that survivor in front of them and the things they're doing right and how hard they're working. So for me, that's so important. And tell us, how did the framework, I mean, how have you applied it to First Nations, Indigenous communities, culturally respectful, of course, to going into First Nations people, whether it's in America, Australia. I mean, how have you found that and how's the model and the framework been applied in that? The, the first thing I want to say is the model evolved in, initially in the United States in an environment that has tremendous structural racism and a, a similar but not the same history of colonization of Indigenous people. I mean, so we, we it comes from a similar environment. It's not I'm not making the equation that all indigenous cultures are the same because they're not, mm-hmm. but the histories of colonization between the U.S. and Australia have similarities. That you know, we have the same issue of overrepresentation of Black and Brown indigenous families in our child protection systems. The the history of families being broken up, you know, of schools where kids were taken from their families yes. and put in there, beaten if they spoke their own language or practice their own culture. Mm-hmm. And so we came out of the same context, a very similar context. And so the model, the name Safe and Together, refers to studying trying to keep safe and together with that non-offending parent. So in systems where there's been overrepresentation of indigenous people, of black people, of brown people, the goal from the beginning has been to try to keep those families 
together in the community safely, right? So it's been an, it doesn't say removal isn't necessary in some cases, but we've seen data showing it's tied to reduction of removal. Okay. And we know that in Australia, that people think about current child safety practices as another stolen generation as that child protection is, is now that formal system is, is the one that's taking their kids. And I know there's similar issues in, in New Zealand with, with Maori and, and Pacific Islander yes. cultures, you know? So, so that's, that's part of the history. The things that when we moved to Australia, you know, one is I, the first trip to Australia, I trained in, in um, Mackay was the first place in Queensland. And mm-hmm. then Brisbane were the first two places I trained. I've been to, I've trained in, in, in there all the way to Mount Isa, all the way down to Sydney and Victoria. We're actually in the ACT. We've done training in Darwin. So we've done training. So our training has also gone out to places like Alice Springs. Yeah. And we've heard feedback from folks there saying the mapping tool has been really well received. The men's behavior change programs there, which are, which are indigenous, for instance. But the things that have been the best received has been, one, the message that from the model that men's choices and behaviors are important to families. And this, this acknowledgement that we need to take men's roles and families seriously, both good and bad. And the answer can't be simply to throw men away. And the answer isn't just to incarcerate them, which has been the dominant mainstream response for accountability for men. And so from the beginning that we've had a really strong component around that. And, and, you know, when I was doing my initial work around the model in one particular child safety agency in the U.S., we were the primary men's focused social work intervention. Nobody else was doing this, the saying, you need to meet with the dads. You need to meet with the dads. You need to talk to them. You need to see uh, what kind of help they are. You need to find out how they think about their own behavior. And, and for communities that the men have experienced trauma, communities where it's, it's a whole family whole of community kind of perspective, this idea that those men are important um, really strikes a chord. And I remember the being in Adelaide, I think, speaking early on, and the person who was doing the welcome to country said to me in front of everybody, thank you for being here and helping us help our men. And, and that continues today as we're doing work with the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency We've done work with DATSIP up in Queensland. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're doing work with Refocus in, in Queensland as well. So we're doing a lot of collaborations and training with Aboriginal organizations. And often the starting place of the conversation is we want to talk about our men. And I actually had somebody say one of our, our first Safe and Together trainers who identified as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, there's a number of them now. She said through somebody else, the message got to me, she says, Safety together may be a better model for the Aboriginal communities than it is for the white communities because it, mm-hmm. it it really thinks more broadly about healing. It thinks more broadly about the perpetrator. Yeah. It doesn't soften up on on responsibility. It doesn't soften up on describing the harm, but it doesn't just see that there's a there's a facile one size fits all yeah. answer, especially when it comes to perpetrators and kids. We know one study says that. 70% of kids will stay in contact with that perpetrating parent. So what difference does it make if he's out of the house and he's still violent? Yeah. You know, in fact, we're kind of fooling ourselves by saying, oh, the, 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 the separation, the end of the relationship ends the danger they present to the kids or to their ex-partner. That's just sure that happens sometimes, but to assume it's automatically better, is, we're just fooling ourselves. 
It certainly sounds like a, a holistic approach, you know, where you're encompassing all the different, you know, the partners, getting them together and, and trying to find the best solution for everybody. But tell me about the, I mean, like you mentioned before, the accountability, the ownership of the perpetrator. Are you seeing some success in, in the recognition that there's underlying challenges there that they need to deal with and then the success of them coming out of the program and not reoffending? Are we seeing any of that? You know, we've seen changes and some unexpected ones. Again, we're not a direct service organization. I mean, no. I did men's behavior change work for a long time, but we are hearing back that the model is is shifting the whole conversation and that's producing results. I, 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 I'll share something in a second, but I wanted to say that I think part of what we've learned is that our entire human services field, whether it's mental health professionals, addiction professionals, child safety, even court legal folks, we don't have enough training around working with fathers. We don't get trained in male socialization. We don't get trained in male parental development. And, and then when you start talking to people about working with violent men, they have all these preconceptions and then add in their, their Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. You know, people have also racial biases. They're violent. They don't care about their kids, all these things that are incorrect, but that people bring all that in. And so they disregard them. They treat them as irrelevant. They treat them as more dangerous than they really are. And, and so we need to have a really massive effort around training people to think about father's roles in families and understanding how their behaviors are, are good or bad or, you know, in, 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 in terms of functioning. But when we hear stories, we start hearing people say, because the system intervened with him, he's actually changing. I never thought, I'm thinking about one particular case where she said, you know, I never thought I could co-parent with him, but because family court and because child safety held him accountable and set boundaries on him. He's actually a reasonable co-parent now. And based on his level of violence, and the way he treated me before, I would have never thought that was possible. Wow. And so when you get that kind of container mm. around, we start seeing people changing and you just have to start thinking about, you know, who, and you know, who is saying that, uh, you know, to this person. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to uh, maybe call out my mental health peers to say, you know, that's different than treating him for his depression. That's different than than treating him for his trauma history. It, it, it's saying to him, you know what, if you've got a trauma, if, if you've got a, from colonization, from racism, from child sexual abuse, that's real, that's important. I want to be here for you. Mm -hmm. But if you're getting violent to your a loved one, to your kid or to your partner, that is doing nothing to help you heal. In fact, that that's probably impeding your healing. And it's and your trauma history is no excuse for you to get violent to your partner or to your to your kids. So we, we need mental health professionals who can hold both these things, that men's trauma histories are real, their addiction issues are real, but yeah. they that they don't just say, Oh, if we treat his addiction, his violence is automatically gonna go away. Yeah. Because we know that's not always true. You know, in fact, I don't even think anybody knows when that happens and when that doesn't happen, but but I've watched, I've worked with men who have been addicts and abusive and they got sober and they continued to be violent much to their, their chagrin. And they, they came to me for help because they thought their addiction issue, once it was, they were in recovery, they thought it would stop. And, and you hear this over and over again, people say, well, he needs to heal his trauma histories and healing his trauma histories will, will stop the violence. And then you start breaking that apart and go, well, how long does it take to heal trauma histories? Well, people heal the trauma over their lifetimes and they don't heal once. Yeah. It's not like setting a broken leg. It's 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 a process. And so 
we need to be in the mental health and addiction field say these are two issues they intersect and 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 we're 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 successful in giving people language to address that. We're giving people language to say, if he's got a violent history and he's suicidal, you have a, a bunch of things to assess. What kind of danger is to himself? But because he's violent, what kind of dangers he represent to other people? But also, is his suicidal statements a manipulation? Because again, thinking about control, one of the most powerful ways. To control somebody saying, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And I've worked with cases like that where there was no real intent. There was no intent. The guy who said that walked into the bathroom, turned the shower, took a knife from the kitchen, walked into the shower and, and turned the water on. And she was supposed to react with fear and bang on the door and say, I love you. Don't do it. And instead, because she actually got some support, she called emergency services and they, they, they came in and they're going to break down the door and they knocked the door. And he was there in a towel. The knife was on the on the on the on the on the sink. He had never intended. It was yeah. it was sheer manipulation. Mm. And and so the mental health field doesn't talk about yeah. suicidality as a form of manipulation. So we have a lot of work to do. And the model's trying to advance. I think those are some of the successes where we're trying to advance those conversations. And we've seen really good uptake from professionals in that area. Certainly sounds like you're having some great success. David, with that, tell me over the 16 years, you've how has the framework progressed? How have you seen it? Are you constantly iterating? Are you, are you identifying new ways to innovate and, and grow and develop the model? Absolutely. You know, one thing we're doing is we have our mapping tool. We're on our third or fourth version of it, which is a very concrete tool. We're very behavioral in the way we work with folks. We're not just teaching professionals what domestic violence is. We're actually giving them tools to practice differently. And so that mapping tool is about to come out in 2022 in an online version and wow. kind of a software app version that, that anybody will be able to access. You know, right now you have to go through our core, our four-day core training, and that will become available. So it will be get democratized and get more, more available for clinicians and for, for legal folks and even for survivors to use. Because what we're seeing is survivors using that mapping tool and changing the way they talk to their, their professionals they're working with. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're, we've seen that happen. That's a new advance in, in, in the work we're doing. We're investing in survivor-led solutions. So we're working with Luke and Ryan Hart, who are two young men out of the UK whose dad murdered uh, their mom and their sister about five years or so, Claire and, and, and Charlotte. And, and since then, Luke and Ryan have been amazing advocates for passing course control laws in the UK and, and speaking publicly about their experience. Because their dad was never violent to them, physically violent to them in their entire lives, but was tremendously controlling. And so we're working with them and another group of survivors to produce a tool that we're calling a multimedia tool called Understanding Course of Control, which again will come out in 2022, which will help professionals have conversations about course of control yeah. with survivors while still maintaining survivors' control over their own narrative. So it's not it's not, it's really trying to keep empowering survivors and, and giving them control over their own lives and not forcing them to fit into the professional's box around things. Well, it sounds like you've got some great developments coming up and, and you're right, that coercive control piece is a key piece. It's really needed that development and progress. And um, we're certainly seeing some countries lead the way in that. Tell us, what do you feel uh, other than that moving forward? What are some other things that you think will be really important facets of the, the DV or the behavioral change? space moving forward? 
I think we, we, we're doing tremendous amount of work in family court spaces. And I think that one important thing is to start thinking about one, how mental health and addiction issues are being manipulated by perpetrators in the family court space, the yeah. survivors issues, and how they're being weaponized against event against those survivors, and to really get clinicians to think more about about that, you know, and that what's happening in that family court space. In that same family court space, we're thinking more about how we use the concepts of collaborative co-parenting to increase accountability for perpetrators as parents, and to get people to start using that lens and say, "Wait a second, this behavior is so far from what we expect from." separating parents to do, you know, that are part of the good parenting that kids need post-separation. We're doing more work. We're continuing to do work on helping people label and identify how perpetrators are manipulating systems. And that includes doing more work in the, the officer-involved domestic violence space, which is where police officers perpetrate domestic violence. We held uh, the first by ever conference in 2021. It was a virtual conference on bringing together international experts who and researchers and advocates and survivors of officer-involved domestic violence to talk about how systems need to get better at identifying when when law enforcement engages in abuse against their own loved ones, against their families, and the repercussions that has for public safety. You know, the data that we have out of the U.S. shows ties with police brutality. So that has implications, again, for marginalized communities of, that experience that police brutality. And I guess the last thing I'd say is, is another big area continues to be this area of intersections of mental health addiction and domestic violence and, and continuing to forward a framework that helps people think about, did the perpetrator cause the mom or the kid's mental health? Did the perpetrator exacerbate existing mental health issues? Did, mm. did they interfere with treatment? So really taking that existing framework that we have and that we're using and and really kind of making it more accessible to people and kind of advancing as a way to help the field move ahead. Mate, sounds like you got a lot on the uh, on the plate and a lot uh, going on. Tell, we do. David, tell us how, how, tell our listeners, how can they get hold of some of your materials or even, you know, look at qualifications and, and training opportunities with the sure. Safe and Together model? So tell us how they can get in touch. We have a tremendous array of online and virtual training opportunities, and, and we're moving back into the in-person space slowly post, I don't want to say post-COVID, but sort of in the transition that we're all going through now. And so the first place you would go to is, is safetytheotherinstitute.com is our main website, and that's where you can download a whole group of, of free resources like white papers on how perpetrators manipulate systems or how perpetrator intervention program certificates are dangerous. Those are just two of them, the gender paradox at the center of the model. So all these white papers are available there. Access to our conferences and, and our events coming up and our free webinars. You know, So we're doing our Asia Pacific conference with Berry Street. I think we're, it's our fourth or fifth one. I, I'm a little wow. embarrassed that I, I don't know. And that's going to be in um, Melbourne in May 2022. Cool. The, the 24th through the 26th. And we're, we've got our fingers crossed that we'll be able to be there in person and that it'll be an in-person live event. And we've done a number of these events before and that they've been hugely successful. You also can take online courses with us and we have a whole range of them. And that's academy.safetogetherinstitute.com. And, and that stretches from a two-hour intro to the model to a, a three-hour course in intersection of domestic violence and mental health and addiction, a two-hour course in working with men as parents, up to things like a four-day core training. And, and that core training is what you need to take if you ever want to be a certified trainer as a prerequisite. 
And the core training is so skills-based. It looks at assessment, interviewing of all the family members, documentation, case planning. And it's it's probably the most popular course on our, our, our virtual academy. And so it's, it's you know, we're, for me as a former practitioner, education awareness is not enough. Practice change, doing mm-hmm. things differently is what we want. So that those courses really hit the mark. And then the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is that they can listen to our podcast, which is free and it's called Partner with a Survivor. And this is the brainchild of, of my in real life partner, Ruth Stearns Mandel. We also work together and she's a survivor of, of different forms of abuse, child and, and adult. And she came up with this idea that she, our conversations between myself and a professional and her as a survivor were rich and we want to share them. And so we create this podcast and it's available from our website and any platform, Apple or Google, any of the platforms you listen to podcasts and it's free. And where we do topics like being trauma informed is not domestic violence informed. We interview folks like Ashley Donahue is a wow. Aboriginal leader in the domestic violence space, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so it's interviews and our conversations and, and we're, we're right in the middle of a mini sode short episodes, 15 minutes, that look at worker safety and well-being, yeah. you know, and deal with a whole range of topics. There. So anyway, that's a that's a that's a raft of resources that, that people can access. Well, that's exciting, and congratulations for for all the work you've been doing, not only in the last thirty years, but especially with the rollout and all the exciting things you have coming up. It's truly amazing to hear about all those different things that you're up to. You must be really busy, and we certainly appreciate you taking some time out of your Sunday to have a chat to us and share your story with our listeners. Well, I really appreciate being invited to speak and also being invited to speak at the conference this week, which I'm looking forward to doing. Looking forward to having you, David, and thanks very much for your time and and good luck in the future. Thanks, Sam. Thanks very much. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.